produced by Podcast Architects. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, thank you so much for joining us at Get Better at Business. I'm sitting down today with John White. Not only is he the managing member of Tech Bundle, he's also a philosopher, and that is uh, way more exciting and interesting than whatever Tech Bundle is. And so we're going to get into all of that today. So, John, thanks for joining us, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it, too. So by far the most interesting part of the bio that I was reading ahead of uh, us getting together is that you started in electrical engineering and you switched majors into philosophy. And I'm just very curious as to what, how you ended up on that route. Yeah. It's uh, easier to explain now than it was at the time. I really didn't have words for it when I was living through it. Um, reflecting on it, it was very much understanding like the difference between aptitude and passion. So I was good at math. Uh, and I kind of, well, I'll, I'll do math for a living. And uh, so I got in electrical engineering, which is all math. And I started to like immerse myself with people who really had a passion for math, like the free time they were learning and doing math problems. I'm like, oh, this is not me. Um, and so I started to realize there's a distinction. And uh, I was like, I don't want to do this the rest of my life. There's no way that, you know, I can be competitive with these guys if that's what they're doing in their free time. And so, uh, you know, I took a step back and really what I enjoy doing is problem solving. And so Anim has a really good philosophy department. Um, I talked to a couple of people and that just ended up being the direction I went in because I had taken some courses already uh, in the philosophy department and, and really it's something I've always been interested in. And I was like, okay, you know, this is really about the abstract process of identifying a problem, framing it, figuring out how to think critically, how to solve it. And that was really like, what I was getting out of math anyway. It's kind of like the, the itch that it was scratching. So that's where that, that came from. And I was much happier and uh, much better in that field than I was just trying to do, you know, straight engineering, straight math. Yeah. And so, you know, you said something that like, I always kind of go back to, I'm curious as to like, you know, presumably whenever you were young and you were a kid, you weren't just like sitting around and, you know, reading, you know, the letters of Seneca and, you know, you know, Marcus Aurelius or whatever, I mean, like, like whatever other philosophical stuff was out there. So like what, as you look back and recognize kind of in your youth that you really liked being a problem solver, like what were the things that you were doing that were kind of scratching that itch whenever you were young? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. So when I was younger, you know, I, there's a lot of stuff I would do that we now we don't call it nerdy, but back then we did, you mm -hmm. know? And so, uh, like for example, I, my family, mostly educators. And so from a young age, they would sit me down and have me do like sentence diagramming with little flashcards on like the floor, you know, um, stuff that you hate at the time, but sure comes in handy later in life. And so it, it was a lot of playing around with, um, you know, Lincoln logs, Legos. It was always like building stuff, um, logic puzzles. There's always stuff like that I was into. And during school, throughout all, all of school, I was in um, TAG, the Talented and Gifted program, where they would actually dedicate, you know, like a day of the week to those things, to logic puzzles and, and, and thinking critically. And so it was always something that was just at the forefront of my mind and something I was, I was interested in doing. And it wasn't like I was going, oh, hey, I, I love philosophy, but I did have an interest in, you know, the problem solving component of it. And when I was in high school, we were actually getting introduced to some of these concepts officially. 
Um, so, you know, things like Descartes and, and concepts like Sartre and existentialism. And so I was like, oh, yeah, this is pretty awesome. And so I already had a foot in the door by the time I got into, into college of understanding like what was behind that door and, and where my interests were. So what was the rest of your college career like after you made that decision to kind of find something, do something that was a little bit more aligned with what you were passionate about? Like what was different after you made that change? Yeah. Well, for one, I was happier. So that's always a bonus. Um, but the other is that I really started to make like solid relationships or develop solid relationships with the staff there within like the, the actual philosophy department. Um, because I had great appreciation for the work they were doing, as well as, you know, a core group of people that I was socializing with that were also interested. Um, because you kind of give up on this idea that, okay, now my degree is associated with my career. You know, when you're in engineering, it's very much like, are you civil engineering, electrical engineering, whatever it is, I'm going to build bridges or I'm going to build microprocessors. So there's this kind of logical conclusion to what you're doing. When you do liberal arts education, it's more of like you're learning for the sake of developing your mind and how to think critically kind of like training, you know, physical training, but for the brain. And so it's like, okay, what am I going to do with that brain? Well, you don't really know yet. And so there's less pressure in terms of, I'm going to go apply this to this specific job. And that was a, a lot more freeing because you're not going, okay, well, I've got to do this. And then I get this job and have this career. You get to just focus more on like the content of what you're doing, which is much more rewarding. So you're not always reading something going, how am I going to use this? You read it for the sake of learning it. Yeah. And so we were, you know, like before we started recording, you know, we were, you know, about to get into a really good rant and I'm sure that we'll, you know, capture the spirit of that, but it's like, it, it seems that you and I both feel that college has basically turned into a, you know, a different form of trade school, basically, like you said, is where it's like, Hey, I'm going to get this degree because this is the pathway to me getting this specific job. Whereas to your point, liberal arts education was, is much more like about, learning about how to think and learning about how to problem solve and problem solve in a more general way that you can apply to a, you know, whatever discipline that you want to have. And so, and I, I say this as somebody that I was a, I, you know, back whenever I was young and stupid and didn't appreciate things, you know, like I do, you know, hopefully don't <laughs> appreciate things a little bit more now. I was always of the mind of like, you know, the idea of philosophy degree or whatever, that was like the, archetypal useless degree. And now that I'm on the other side of it or whatever, and have kind of, you know, done a little bit of, you know, just very amateur studying of it and interest in it. I'm like, dude, I wish that I would have learned all this stuff would have been way more useful to me than my engineering degree. And actually the aspects of my engineering degree that I continue to apply because I've never been a, I've, I've never, my degrees in civil engineering, I've never civil engineered anything. But it's the problem solving aspect of that education that I've actually carried forward with me. And so I don't know, man, what are your, like, if, I'm going to give you a magic wand and let you change the university system here. And so what, what's the first thing that you're going to do to kind of write the ship, kind of having that perspective? Yeah. So I guess I would start by saying, I don't claim that learning specific skill sets applicable to like a career field is bad. Um, no, you know, very glad the doctors, very glad the doctors, exactly. you know, <laughs> yeah. But if you look at like the medical field, there's a really specific way you go about having a generalized set of, or body of knowledge you learn, and then you begin to specialize, right? So it's, it's built on a foundation. And I feel like we keep cutting away at that foundation for everyone, right? So you're, you're lacking in language, reading and writing skills, critical thinking skills, and it goes straight to, okay, well, you need to learn and memorize these facts and figures and memorize these tolerances or, or this methodology. 
and it makes you like less of a well-rounded and whole person. And so it, it kind of puts you at a, a, a deficit um, compared to other people. And to me, the entire point of a, an education, especially what we're talking about, like a classical education is, okay, that's the next level of training your mind. Now you're, you're more prepared to do tackle a, a much wider breadth of concepts and problems and not just this one area that you've been trained in for four years. Um, because especially with the evolving, like speaking as someone that runs a business, the evolving workforce, you know, is you have to be more adaptive and those skills might go away or become worth less. And you have to be able to quickly realign and, and change careers or fields. If you haven't developed yourself to where you can do that quickly, you're, you're at seriously at a disadvantage because it's, how are you going to be able to, to, to react? Totally, man. And so like you just made, you know, like, I mean, I, I am totally on board with you, but take me back in time to where you were 22 years old and presumably having to make this pitch that you just described about how this philosophy degree has, you know, been, uh, you know, has prepared you to solve a wide variety of problems. But it's like, dude, how do you train? How did you translate that into career opportunities once you got done with school? Yeah. So it, it's kind of cheating in my part because um, <laughs> I, I've always had like IT to fall back on as a skill set, right? So, um, you know, and it's always something I've been I've been passionate about and good at and, and aware of. So it's not like I went and jumped into a brand new field and, and applied that. But what it did help with was, you know, you, you have this passion for something. And then when you take raw problem solving ability and you apply it to something like, and it's one of the reasons you see people that are great at philosophy do legal, right? You take it to a, a career where what you're trying to do is take information, break it down to its base components. So you get rid of all your biases and all your preconceived notions as best you can. And then go, okay, how does that work out? And it kind of helps you look at things from a more objective point of view. In IT, that's what we do every day. You know, you've got to take a problem as it comes in. You've got to understand what's really happening versus how it's reported to you or how it looks on the surface. And then go, okay, is there anything deeper going on here? How do we tackle this? What's the best plan of action? And that way you're not chasing a rabbit and spending a whole bunch of energy and time and business money trying to solve the wrong problem. And that's that's like the classic engineering problem, right? You know, you spend a lot of time and energy solving the wrong problem. Yes, yes. Striking at the, uh, you know, hacking at the leaves rather than striking the root of the problem. So like, what I mean, what was, you know, uh, take me to tech bundle, I guess, and just like, what, where was the, you know, so like, I mean, Kind of give me the origin story of that and how does that tie back to, you know, kind of this intersection of your enthusiasm for problem solving and your IT skill set? You know, how did those two things kind of marry together and bring the company into existence? For sure. So um, Tech Bundle is an interesting story because basically it was, um, it was just pure serendipity. I, I had a, my girlfriend at the time uh, was doing theater with the wife of the owner of Tech Bundle. And so that's how I ended up getting, you know, an interview. And, um, you know, I was kind of going in dragging my feet because I was like, I really don't want to start doing IT as a career. I'd much rather stay in like education, do academia. Uh, but I've been very disillusioned by that as a prospect, you know, because it's, there's this concept of academia as this like, okay, cool. This is this place where you can be uh, yourself and be open-minded and, and have competing thoughts and ideas. And you start to realize how political it really is, depending on, you know, the, the biases of that university system or that department. And there are kind of these games you have to play. And you're like, okay, so it's a career like any other career. It's not like it's unique to that. And uh, so I was like, okay, well, I've, I've got to do something. I've got to get a job. I can't just sit here and think about problems all day for fun. And uh, so, you know, I, I went and talked to him and then and long story short, I ended up with that job, but it was really like a part-time offer. And so I was working like, you know, half hours and I was just doing kind of bench stuff like entry-level IT. 
but in terms of intersectionality, so like you get to the point where it's like, okay, cool, I'm doing IT now for, for a living officially, but I have this whole developed kind of problem solving kit at my disposal. So immediately I start looking around and going, where are there areas for improvement? How can we make a better mousetrap? And so seeing beyond just here are these problems I'm solving every day, but like on a meta level, how can we get better at the approach we take to solving these problems every day? Um, and so it wasn't like, oh, hey, I want to be management track. It was just sh like surely out of this desire for, I want to make a more efficient system. And so I kept applying that uh, lens to different areas of the business. And so that kind of just kept me around and got me more and more responsibility as time went on and uh, eventually got to a point where I was getting some serious offers from like major cities, right? And, and so business owner and I had an agreement and uh, I bought into the company to stick around and Eventually, I refined the business to such a point that it was really mine at that point. These, these all had my signature on them from things I'd changed and overhauled and done. And so we, we eventually like parted ways and I bought them out. It was all 100% amicable. And it wasn't really like this Machiavellian plan I sat down and planned out. It was <laughs> really, it was, it was masochism, if anything else. It was, you know, it was just like taking on more and more responsibility and just so I could try to see through a better outcome or a more efficient way of, of doing things. I like the freedom of being able to do that. It's like, here's a smarter way to handle this. Okay, let's try it. What was your first big win or your first big like thing that you changed? Because, you know, you said that you're just like kind of out of this desire to sort of, you know, get down to the root of the problem. What was the first thing that you, where you really, you know, solved not just the thing that you were handed, but the underlying issue? Yeah, that's a great question. So, it wasn't technical, actually. It was um, it was business or financials. So we back in the day had multiple kind of offerings, right? You know, people have like their different precious metal packages or their you know gold, platinum, silver, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we had like all these different tiers, and so you know, working all these tickets and being exposed to all these areas of the company is kind of boots on the ground. I already had these kind of suspicions that I wanted to confirm, so I started looking at the data that we collected behind the scenes, which was all there. And going, okay, well, let's look at like the volume of tickets we're getting and where we're spending time, especially repeat time on issues versus the revenue being generated by that type of agreement or by that type of client base. And I was like, hey, we've got like these areas where there are enormous opportunity costs happening because these people are barely paying us anything, but they're taking up like 70% of our time, you know? And so this is me being there like, I don't know, it was like year one or year two. So it's like, who the hell am I? Um, but I just couldn't help myself. And so we, I was like pointing out, we should really evaluate which of these clients we want to keep around or which ones we want to try to price out or, or put on a better agreement. Um, and it's something we worked toward as an organization and eventually culminated in us um, with, with my business partner at the time deciding, hey, we're just going to cut a good chunk of our clients, like over 200 of them, um, because they were individuals or break fix or one offs or whatever. And the majority of our revenue was coming from the remaining, you know, 20 percent. And it let us hone our business model and, you know, basically fill a niche where it's like we're doing just this now. And as a re reaction or as a consequence of that, our gross revenue numbers went down, but our margins went way up and it enabled us to hire better people, pay more, have better benefits. You know, it really sets you up to be more successful for the more in demand clients who are going to ask more of you because you've got the infrastructure to support them. Well, you know, the idea of like firing customers is, I don't know, in my experience, often talked about, rarely executed. And so was that, uh, you know, when it, when it, when you were making the case that that was the the right thing to do, did you come against cross resistance? I mean, because I know that for anybody, it can be very scary to you know further con to you know 
further concentrate your revenue stream or whatever, where it's like, hey, instead of getting it from a whole bunch of people, now we're just getting it from a much smaller subset. It feels riskier. Did you run into any uh, resistance there whenever you were proposing that? So we had people that thought we were crazy from the outside, but to my business partner's credit, he was 100% on board. He had you know his own concepts and ideas of how we could go about doing it. So he was he was completely on with it. And, um, you know, the data was staring us in the face. It wasn't like we were, you know, taking a, a guess or, or doing a gut check. It's like we, the benefit of going through the pain of tracking all this was showing us the reality of, of what we were putting ourselves through. So to us, it was just a rational decision to be made. But, you know, you go to these conferences or to events like IT Nation or whatever, and people would complain. They bitch to you about, oh, you know, I've got all these clients to take up all my time. and I really need to go up their rates. And I'm like, why don't you just fire them? And it's like the idea of doing that. They're like, well, it's money on the table. I'm like, not really. You know, it's the idea of that not all revenue is good revenue. And some people just can't get themselves away from that. Like it's, it's, it's insidious. Like they, they just can't, they can't bring themselves to do it. And I'm like, trust me, man, if you do it, the opportunity is going to open up for you is going to more than pay for that over time. Not to mention the stress level, you know, but there's no way that you can get to that point as a business. If you're, if you're just stuck down in a hole all the time, putting out fires, you know, you create this trap for yourself and then they wonder why they can't get out. Well, you know, you kind of get stuck down in the grass, right? I mean, it's like, that's yeah. an analogy we use around here all the time. It's like, you got to be able to, like, if you're down in the grass, you know, you got to stick your head up every once in a while and see if there's the friggin' lion coming after you, you know, while you're down in the grass, you can't see it. So as you have, as you have success in your, you know, in, in solving these problems and really getting down to some of these root causes and thinking about it very systematically, it's just like, Let's just take the example that you just gave for, you know, hey, we found these customers that were not very profitable. Was that something that you just solved that one time or was were you able to kind of systemize that thinking in an ongoing way so that in the event that, you know, to prevent you from waking up one day and finding out that you had taken on 200 more customers that were just kind of like the old ones. And so what is it, you know. How do you prevent yourself from just solving it once and get into where it's like, let's set up a system where we can solve it forever? That's a really good question too. So there's a couple of different parts to this answer. Um, several years ago, around 2015 at this point, COVID makes everything mm -hmm. so difficult to remember when things <laughs> happen. Yeah. But around 2015, on our, we have a professional services side of our division, basically projects that we do for our clients for major implementations. And we were running into all the classic like projects problems that you would have. And so I started to seriously investigate and get into Agile as a framework. And at the time, I was also reading Good to Great. And so I was trying to understand, you know, how do we get the right people in our company? How do we get the right framework to, to operate within the company? How do we really understand the client we want to be working with, the ideal client? And in a way of trying to tackle this unique problem of we have multiple projects across multiple clients. And of course, we have something similar on the service side, but it really stood out on the project side. And so I was like, okay, and back to one of your original questions in terms of where philosophy comes in handy, it was like, well, we need to go back to like something on the, on the fundamentals if we really want to address this systematically and not just put a bandaid on it. So let's figure out a framework we all agree will work. Let's implement it, let's build on it. But it kind of acts as, for lack of a better term, like our constitution of what we will and won't do as an organization. Here are our basic operating tenants. And you know, one of those is, is operational transparency internally with Agile, like you don't want to create this top-down pyramid, right? Where the people who are usually the least qualified to make technical decisions are forcing them down on everybody else. And then they wonder why we have rockets blow up, right? So you, you basically go, okay, I'm going to ask people for their feedback. As a consequence of that, I need to hire better people because I want the sounding board to be more effective. 
Um, and so that's where like the kind of Jim Collins idea of like, let's get everybody in the bus that we want on the bus. And so we started to make this transition to agile. We started to make this transition to hiring better and better people and retaining them longer and, and getting them more invested in the organization. And then we, through agile, we we're like, okay, if we're going to tackle a problem, um, and this, like I said, more complex answer, cause it starts to get into the goal, like this idea of what's the main constraint we have as an organization and let's turn our attention to that and tackle it. If we're going to do that and we're going to throw all our resources at it, we want to fix it and fix it for good as best you can. So what is it that's causing this to happen? You know, what could cause it to happen in the future and how do we keep that from, from occurring? And so, you know, you start to look at the data. It always comes back to that, right? You try to be objective and go, okay, let's go look at the numbers and the facts. And okay, is there a policy change we can make? Is there a different client we need to be looking at? Um, are our rates in some area wrong? That's the, the, what, what's, what's responsible for this happening? And then if it's a matter of just measuring information to keep yourself from getting in the trap, figure out what you need to measure, figure out a way to automate that measurement and then make it something that's in front of you. So not to sound like a, I'm a, a sound or a, you know, advertising widgets or dashboards or anything like that. They're not, they don't solve everything in your life, but if you know what pieces of data you really want that are critical to your business, and usually there's just a few that really matter, the rest are nice to have, get it somewhere where it's in front of you. You know, don't wait to go look at it four or five months from now. Don't do like an end of the year recap because that's just looking at what's already happened and it's too late to change, you know, and you're always chasing. So that's been the big thing for us. It's like get the right people and then look at the right information. And so when we do our huddles at the end of the day, we went from looking at like all the tickets and going, here's everything going on to here's some key like metrics that we're watching and how are those moving up or down? So are we making progress or are we going backwards? And if we're going backwards, we drill into that and we go, what's causing that to happen? Is it a new client we brought on that's not standardizing correctly? You know, was it COVID and people working from home? Sometimes you can't change what's causing it, but it's, you want to know, you know, because it might be transient and goes away in four months. But it's when you just kind of suffer through something and you can't get to the bottom of why it's happening. That's where you start to be at the mercy of the market or the mercy of your clients. You lose control of your business, you know? Yeah. So there's a lot of, you know, like a lot of the stuff that you, you're you kind of hitting on. You know, you mentioned, I heard a few things in there. You, you talked about Agile. You know, you, you talked about some of the good to great framework. You mentioned theory of constraints, which comes from the goal. And uh, there, there's no shortage of systems out there, right, that are, you know, where people will, you know, purport to you that it's, here is the solution to all of your problems. I'm, I'm kind of curious as to, you know, so, somebody that sounds like you were familiar with, uh, you know, some of those systems and then also, you know, philosophy just as a discipline and as an education of kind of in that, you know, and you have gotten into the discipline of looking for the root causes of stuff. Of the stuff that you have seen out there, do you have any that you find that are, kind of your favorites because they're like, you know, this is really very foundational, fundamental ideas that we are working with here. It's not, you know, a bunch of, you know, sunshine and rainbows that somebody's selling to us, but it's like, these are real good philosophically sound approaches to making sure that we get, you know, you know, continue to improve our businesses. Yeah. This is where I can probably piss off a lot of people that uh, <laughs> might listen to y'all, but, uh, I take a very like analytic approach to the, those types of, of resources. So to me, why I mentioned good to great is like anything that goes, Hey, we did a study and here's what we looked at. And we're going to tell you up front how we glean this information and what our data sources are. Great. That's a, to me, a scientific or a social studies endeavor. You know, it's got, 
you can look at their data and see how they interpreted it and judge their conclusions based on the data. When it's a feel good self-help type, you know, approach, I'm like, cool. So to me, that's, you get rich by having me buy your, your, you know, tips. And, and it's no really different than a Ponzi scheme. So the first thing I look at is what are they basing this on? And has it ever been used anywhere? So when you look at theory of constraints, well, I mean, can you come up with a better example of something that got used and turned around, you know, manufacturing uh, worldwide now um, and, and has plenty of examples of where it's, it, it works, you know, um, in a real evident way. And then when you look at the fact that for us as an IT provider, the reason stuff like good to great or pumpkin plan, those types of things are, are really about like, okay, you have to step, take a step back. You have to understand what you're trying to accomplish as a business. And you have to look at what's going to get you there as an organization. And any of these like methodologies or modalities that go, you need to make an investment in your people and now contemporary business and technology. And you need to find a good way of basically creating as much leverage with those people as you can. So don't throw bodies at it, get really smart people who can leverage these tools to be a multiplier. I, I like that, I get behind that because to me that's kind of the name of the game because everything changes so fast now. You don't wanna be like on the Titanic trying to change course, right? You wanna be a very small, very aggressive organization that can react to the market quickly, that can use these tools and can outsource anything that, that makes sense. So you know, Why bring a CPA in-house if you're not a CPA firm? You know, this kind of old school approach that we're going to have a multi-story building and we're going to have departments and we'll cover everything. It's like, no, just throw all the way, all the way figure out what you're really good at and what the market will, you know, pay you to do. This is the Kaizen concept and do that. And, and in terms of these supplementary materials, like seriously, theory of constraints to me, if I told someone like have one framework, it's the best one to me because it, it, it's a lens through which you can look at all other frameworks. And I, by that, I mean, you go, okay, I'm going to analyze my organization if I think about it honestly, what's the one thing that's a bottleneck on me right now that needs my attention or my entire organization's attention? And if you've got people, and as, as you will, when you run a business, demanding your attention, because there's always things to improve or fix or that they're not happy with, you can feel like you're being pulled apart. If you have the discipline to go, I get that, I hear you, but this one thing is, is the most important thing in an organization, and someone offers you a framework or offers you a way of thinking that helps you solve that bottleneck, by all means, go for it. If that's EOS or whatever it is, great. But if it's not, don't waste your time going through all the opportunity costs to do that if your problem is sales, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so okay. The, and so for anyone that is not familiar with uh, the theory of constraints, theory of constraints is basically a, uh, I mean, it, it really, you know, fundamentally is a thinking framework. It's very popular in manufacturing and is, you know, sort of a cousin of a lot of other manufacturing and operational frameworks out there, such as you know, Lean Six Sigma and Toyota production system. I mean, like they're the kind of different languages that are sort of pointing to the same thing. But the whole idea is, you know, kind of like the strength of the system is determined by the weakest link in the chain. And so, you know, every single business has got, you know, if you are still in business, you have an unlimited number of problems that you could go out and solve, a limited number of things that you could go and improve. What Theory of Constraints says is that there's only one of these things that is your biggest problem. You know, by definition, only one thing can be the biggest problem that is holding back the system. And so that is where your effort needs to go. And so to kind of prove this out, I guess, I'm curious if you have any stories about some time whenever you were dealing with some kind of big, you know, hard to define problem and you went through this analysis and 
The, the, salute, the problem was not what you thought was the problem, but as a result of doing this thinking where you found that it was like, you know, it really seemed like the biggest problem that we had was that we didn't have enough revenue coming in. But then whenever we dug into it, it turns out that it's like our onboarding process sucked. <laughs> like what was like, do you have any stories of like surprises that you found by being really intentional about going through this type of thinking? Yeah, I do actually. Um, this is one that might help people. So one of the problems in IT that you learn to look for is what they call a recurring ticket. So basically you go and you think you've solved the problem, you put it to bed, you move on and it comes back and you're trying to understand if it's coming back as a function of, is it something that is, a, is the wrong solution and it's just not a good fit for the client or the problem they're trying to solve? Um, or is it, you know, our fault as the IT provider, did we not fix the problem correctly? It can be a hard thing to differentiate. And so, you know, when you're dealing with engineers, they're not going to tell you it's my fault. I, I suck. <laughs> you should blame yeah. me. It's always going to be the, the solution's fault. And so one of the my dad things was in the, just, my, my dad was in the tractor business for a long time and they, uh, people would come in and bring something wrong. They would always, so first thing was like, you know, I wonder if it's the nut between the seat and the steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, uh, so anyway, yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, I, you're right. I've never come across somebody that's like, you know, look, man, my computer is broken because I did something and I stopped doing it. Right. It's like, that's, that's never it. I'm sorry to interrupt. Please. No, 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 you're good. So. It's something and where I was going with that is, you know, you get to this point where uh, groupthink in a, in a company is a really dangerous thing, because if you start to gang up on a client you don't like or a solution that you all agree you don't like, right, then you stop being objective and you start being biased really quickly. So the, the first sign of a problem, you're gonna be like, well, yeah, that product sucks. So, of course, it's an issue. And so we started to do that. And I had these kind of preconceived notions I've made up my mind about on a solution we wanted to move away from. And, you know, it was like, okay, fair enough. I know it's a pain in the butt. We'll start talking to this other vendor. We'll see what a transition looks like. But just to be sure, I went back and looked at our ticket data because we capture three things with their tickets. We capture who's having the issue as a client, like the end user. We capture the person working the ticket, of course. Um, and we're capturing like the solution that we're working with, Dropbox, a backup, whatever it is. And so I, I started looking through the supposed issues we were having with this, this solution. And what I kept finding was we had like these one or two guys that were working all these problems and the tickets kept coming back. And it wasn't so much an issue with the solution as it was with the people working the solution and their problem solving ability. And the fact that they would basically presume that they know what's wrong and they would chase that without ever taking a step back and really trying to define the problem first, which is a real problem you deal with in IT. And, you know, it would be like, well, yep, we, we fixed it and it broke again. It's like, you're fixing the wrong thing and you're not addressing the underlying problem. And if you do that, it works fine. So by having that data there and having it be like a reality check, it's, and that's not the only example, it's saved us multiple times and it's a great thing to be able to fall back on. And so I tell people, you know, I, I don't encourage you to like run your business by just, for lack of a better term, fetishizing your, your statistics, right? Like making everything about this number or this figure. That's why I say, figure out which ones matter but have that information. So if you need it, you can go look at it objectively because all of us, you know, even not to be like nefarious about it, we're all just guilty of having these biases built in and, and being like, yeah, that's not really something that happens that often. And you go look at the, the data and it's like, yeah, it is. And that's a nice thing to be able to go do and be like, okay, who's going to argue with this? It's, we're all sharing the same database and we all have the same information available to us. Like I'm not targeting you. It just, this is what it is. It says X. And so Dude, that, that was eye-opening. So this has just been a fascinating conversation. And I'll tell you that it, like, I am surprised 
at the big takeaway I'm taking from our conversation. I thought whenever, I don't know what I was expecting to get from you, John, when I found out that you were, you know, into philosophy, but I was probably not expecting that it's like about the importance of data and the importance of numbers. And, and like where I'm, where I'm kind of taking this back to, and, you know, you, you correct me if I'm wrong here is that, you know, your philosophical and problem solving training has kind of given to you and a tool that you have. It's all about kind of getting down to the, you know, an unbiased view of, you know, seeking out the root of the problem. And it's whenever you look at logic, you know, as it's at its core, it's separating the things that, you know, are true from not true. And it's really hard to do that if you cannot, if without the numbers in business, right? It's very hard to have a very objective conversation. And so I, I think that, you know, my big takeaway is that it's like, look, the, you know, if, if you want to take kind of that very fundamental philosophical approach to solving the problems that you have in business and being able to identify, you know, these root causes, it's just really hard to do that without the hard data. No, a hundred percent. I would tell, you know, I would say two things. One, absolutely collect the data. If you want to be able to take an objective look at your, at your business. And if you don't have the tools to do that, figure out who you need to talk to to make that happen. Cause otherwise you're guessing. And the other, you asked me earlier in terms of, of business, you know, advice or, or, or books or works that I would recommend profit first, which is really the envelope system. Right. But is a game changer for a lot of people, because especially if they don't have like a, a business background where they're not, you know, MBAs, they don't understand categorizing their revenue and setting aside money for taxes, setting aside money for fees to, you know, for the different vendors they need to work with. And so they're constantly, it's, it's almost like they're running a household budget. And it's really stressful. Um, so that's something we implemented several years ago. And it's, it's been a great relief in terms of when you have to pay taxes and you have an account already set up. Having the profit account's great, don't get me wrong. But for me, it's all about having the tax account covered so that there's no surprises if they change the tax laws. And you know, it's, again, I don't stay up to, on that because it's not my career. So just having money in that account going, oh, that sucks, but we have the cash to cover it and I don't have to make installment payments to the IRS, you know, that, that'll keep you wanting to run a business instead of bashing your head into a wall. So, yeah. Well, uh, in, any final words of advice for... Uh... I guess, you know, any, any final words of advice for, I guess, somebody that is found themselves in, you know, what, you know, regardless where you, whether you're in college or you're just working at a company, or if you're like in a business and you have found yourself working in a business that you do not have that passion for, you know, maybe you have some aptitude for it, but you're not digging it. What, what advice would you give to somebody that maybe needs a little nudge to be brave and take a leap like you did when you changed your major way back when? Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, decide what you want out of life if, and be honest with yourself. If, if you want to have financial independence, nice way of saying, you know, you don't have to worry about money. And that's really what you want in life. Don't judge yourself for it. Do it. But understand if that's the path you want to take. Capitalism doesn't reward merit. It rewards the value of something. So you have to really take a, a hard look at what are you good at? Like I mentioned earlier with the Kaizen principle, right? What are you passionate at? What are you good at? And what can you make money doing? And really think to yourself about that for, and it's, it's a hard thing to really self-evaluate and go, what do I have that fits all three of those? And if that's not what you're doing, you're wasting your time. If you aren't interested in being financially successful, pick what you have a passion for in life, say, screw it and do it. You know, I mean, because if, if you're not that type, you're just gonna be miserable anyway. You're gonna have lots of money and hate yourself. And I've met plenty <laughs> of people that are like, are like that. It's amazing. Yeah. 
You know, it's the more money, more problems trope. And you really see it because they have to worry so much about people coming after them. And it's like you go from, you know, someone saying, oh, don't worry about it if they hit your car to all of a sudden they're suing you for emotional damages because they know that you have cash. It comes with a whole bunch of baggage. And so if that's not something you're willing to deal with, like, just figure out what you love in life and do that, especially if you're young. You know, you think your life's already halfway over. It's like you got plenty of time. Nobody knows yeah. what the hell they're doing when they're in their 20s. Yeah, that's that is the truth. And you know what? It's like. Somebody that's creeping, somebody that's creeping up on forty. I don't have, st <laughs> still just kind of trying to figure it out. So, uh, well, John, man, I, I, dude, fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for all your insight and your wisdom. And so, uh, if people want to get, you know, get in touch with with Tech Bundle. Where can they find you? Yeah, so we're at uh, techbundle.com. You can go check out our website and get an idea of what we do. Um, and we also have a an email for. Um, basically sales at techbundle.com that will get you in contact with our business development in an event that you're interested in learning more about what we do or if we could help you out we basically just do business to business outsourced it so well i can i can I, as somebody that has had uh experience with you know people that are good at this and people that are bad at this you know having a good partner in the outsourced it uh you know as far as your outsourced it that makes a really big difference and can eliminate a lot of headaches you have so uh, if, if you're in the market for something like that, I encourage you to talk to John. He can, uh, I'm sure, get you some more information about how he might be able to help you. But so, John, thank you so much. Those of you who have been listening, I really appreciate it. I learned a ton from this one. I hope that y'all did too. And so until next time, uh, you can uh, please, you know, subscribe and you can hear more great conversations with folks like John. And uh, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, John. Thank you.